I'm glad that it did because it clearly it, it, it's getting to the nerve of, of some of the societal issues that we find ourselves with, I guess. Meet Extralian Management Consulting CEO and whistleblower Bianca Goodson. I felt encouraged and I felt strong to write this letter and pen this letter to the CEO of Eskom. Bianca is referring to a letter she wrote this year on the 17th of October to current Eskom CEO Andre Dereta. Now, the letter details how Bianca risked everything, her career, her marriage, to expose irregular dealings between Trillion, where she worked, and the consultancy company McKinsey. These dealings cost Eskom over a billion rand. The letter that I wrote to him was just was basically saying, look, you know, Eskom was involved in state capture um, to the extent that people were employed in that organization and they co- were complicit and were involved in state capture. Subsequently, Eskom has been awarded a return of certain costs. So they won a civil suit against uh, both McKinsey and Company and Trillion. And that amounted to about 1.6 billion rand being returned to the fiscus and to Eskom. Her argument is that when such huge amounts of money have been recovered as a result of her whistleblowing, and which has led to her unemployment and post-traumatic stress disorders, then she should at least receive appropriate compensation. And I just wrote the letter highlighting the fact that the people that were used to support that application, which is myself and a few others as well, you know, we we grateful that we could help because that was the intention, but but it comes at a cost to us. And internationally, there is a precedent for this. I did leverage um, existing legislation in the U.S., for example, to say, you know, but in the U.S., um, whistleblowers are recognized um, for their efforts through the False Claim Act, where they can actually get a percentage of successful funds being rewarded. Welcome to The Witness. I'm Fatima Hassan. We are going to get back to Bianca's story as a whistleblower in a moment. First, you should know that this podcast series is brought to you by PLAF, the platform to protect whistleblowers in Africa, and is produced by Volume. Throughout this series, we are going to explore what it takes to become a whistleblower and the incredible impact that these brave individuals can have. In this episode, We are looking at the topic of loss from whistleblowers who risked everything and lost a great deal in the process of speaking out. Now, we go back to the story of Bianca, who has written a letter to the CEO of ESCOM in order to make the case to receive financial compensation for speaking out and disclosing irregular deals. If you wanted to incentivize the right behavior in society, you certainly could incentivize the right behavior by saying, look, if you do blow the whistle, if you do expose corruption, that there will be an incentive for you. But I do think it comes to the maturity of the country that you find yourself in. The key problem that Bianca faces is unemployment and job insecurity. You know, I come from a position prior to me working for Trillion and getting embroiled in the state-captured debacle I come from a position where I was constantly headhunted. I never, ever had to apply for a job. I was always offered positions um, that were always better off, and that's how I progressed my career in the past. 
But now it's the complete opposite. It's the antithesis of that. Um, where I am looking for positions that are even lower than what I believe my competencies and skills um, could actually benefit. And, and I'm still getting turned down. Many companies don't like to employ whistleblowers, even though they speak out against corruption. Unfortunately, they see whistleblowers as potential troublemakers. People say to you, to your face, and I'm talking about chairmen of boards, would say to you, you're so brave, you've got so much integrity, we back you, you know, we support you 100%. But pragmatically, nothing comes out of that. Um, and, and the only way that I can explain that in my logical mind is that there has to be some sort of unconscious bias when it comes to whistleblowers. And I'm not an expert in terms of how do you overcome an un unconscious bias, but I believe that it's there. Um, and I'm happy to try and become an advocate to eventually sort of eradicate that. But, but for now, the only way that I can explain it is that there has to be because formally and officially, nobody tells you that they won't employ you because you're a whistleblower. They tell you that you're brave, you've done the right thing, you've got integrity. And when you apply at that same company of that same CEO, you get, we regret to inform you, dot, 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 let you verbally and publicly make a statement of what you're looking for, but there's something inherently in you personally that's stopping you from actually progressing with the very same things that you are actually advocating for. Bianca admits that this process has completely changed her as a person. I don't want to come across as being um, negative in any way, but, but what I can tell you is that it's completely and utterly broken me. This, this was never part of my plan. It was never part of my intention. But with that said, it's clear that because I'm still standing, I'm obviously strong to an extent, I guess, because um, I've survived it, I'm still here. But I, it makes it impossible for me to sort of foresee a future because the plans that I had once are gone, they're disseminated. I've become this new person inadvertently through this process and I struggle to define who, who I am now. You know, I struggle to say, I, I don't want to be Bianca the whistleblower. I still want to be Bianca Chloe's mom, which I'll always be. Uh, but I want to go back to Bianca the executive changing corporate culture, which I was before, you know. So I'm stuck. Um, I, I find myself stuck. Bianca finds that the more she pursues her career in activism, then the more strongly she is defined as Bianca, the whistleblower, which she doesn't want. So it's a difficult one. I mean, there are so many times, you know, through so many therapy sessions that I've had where I've, I've tried to convince myself that I just have to step away from this thing called stone capture. I have to step away from being defined as a whistleblower and just try and progress my life as normal. And the more that I try and do that through completely independent employment opportunities and private sex opportunities, the more I don't seem to progress at all you end up being in a position where you're saying to yourself, look, I'll do what I have to do to pay my bills. What I can tell you is that I don't find myself in a position with copious opportunities. Surprisingly, the Rater, the ESCOM CEO, replied to Bianca's letter, but he said that he couldn't foresee any compensation being paid out to her. He did offer her an opportunity to come and speak to his leadership team and to be paid a modest fee for that. Yes, I've replied to Andre Deroach and I've told him that I would gladly speak to his leadership for the modest fee. Um, 
and I'll do whatever I can to support my family at the moment, you know. So I don't find myself in a position where I can turn down opportunities to support myself and my daughter. So I'll do it. And, and that takes away from the architecture of a career. But she's taking the advocacy and speaking opportunities basically to keep a roof over her head. And simultaneously, she's trying to cope with the trauma of the entire experience. I'm getting treated at the moment for post-traumatic stress disorder because of what happened in 2017 and 2016. And one of the things that my doctor makes me realize and appreciate is that when you are, you know, this thing called the flight, fight, and freeze response. You know, when your body just goes into that adrenaline, like that state of shock. And that's exactly what happened. You instinctively react. It's, it's animalistic. You know, you instinctively react to what you believe is the right thing to do in that instinct instantaneous moment of survival, not knowing what the consequences are at all. So as much as there were people like Plath, for example, the whistleblowing society that supported me, they tried so hard to give me a view of the disruption that I may face. I promise you, and I swear to God that in my opinion, I would not be here today if it wasn't for for Plath. And I've said that on numerous platforms before, And for the rest of my life, I will still maintain that. I met Plath by pure coincidence. Um, They had reached out to an ex-colleague of mine, Masila Mathepu, and they had made an arrangement with her where they would support her and being a whistleblower. And I met Plath through the fact that Masila needed somebody to corroborate her evidence. We will be hearing from her in a later episode. And I met Pluff, and the intention was simply to corroborate Masilo's evidence. And in that meeting, Pluff said to me, but your evidence is explosive in itself. And it was through that process that I became a whistleblower with Pluff. Um, I didn't even realize that my, my information was explosive. And this was early. It was in January 2017. I eventually made my statement public in September of that same year. But, I mean, you must appreciate that every, almost every day I was on the phone with somebody from Plough just trying to get psychological guidance, legal strategy, physical protection guidance. It's the, the relationship was so intimate. Um, and I'm so appreciative of it because even times when I would get so irritable and I, my frustrations would get the better of me, you know, there were representatives from Plough that would say to me, but what about your daughter? And because they, they, they gave me that sort of reality check, it forced me to be responsible at the time as opposed to be impulsive. Even Bianca's parents met a representative from Plough. That is how involved they were. And my parents cried when they met her and they gave her the biggest hug because they know that she saved my life in times that I would have been irresponsible. And that's the kind of connection that you end up having with these people in terms of doing the right thing. During that process, I had moments where I thought of doing silly things. So, for example, when I felt frustrated that our organs of state weren't taking my 
because I volunteered, right? I volunteered to make my information available to organs of state. And when they dismissed me continuously, I got frustrated and I decided that I wanted to take my affidavit, which I had prepared for Parliament, and I wanted to go and drop it off at the nearest police station. And I had Pluff with my attorneys saying to me, don't you dare do it. And the reason why that was important at the time is because in South Africa, what prevailed at that time was that our law enforcement agencies were captured. So it would have been a mistake for me. And they talked me off that ledge. They encouraged patients. And they put pressure in the background on the right organs of state for me to make my information public in the right way. The next problem Bianca had to deal with was the guilt. Prior to me making my information public, I felt guilty about the fact that what was happening in South Africa at the time is that a lot of journalism and journalists out there were exposing state capture. They were just reporting on whatever public records or whatever whistleblowing information they received. And with me being quiet and not blowing the whistle, I felt guilty that I'm not help, helping their cause. So the more you sit with that information and not give it to the right entities to actually act on it, to do something about it, it does sort of um, create this sense of guilt, you know. And so you don't want to sit with it for too long. And that creates this huge conflict in your head. In my case, I became impatient just wanting, I, I refer to it in my blog as I wanted to get the monkey off my plate. And I wanted it to just become somebody else's problem. I didn't want it to be mine anymore. And I felt if I gave it to somebody or some entity that was more empowered than me, that I was just sort of ridding myself of the burden, you know. And that's part of the frustration and the guilt. And But you've got to be patient with that, which means that you've got to sit with it until the right opportunity presents itself. And it's hard. When she finally disclosed the information, she says she was so exhausted that she slept for two full days. So when you do eventually release it, I think your body sort of goes into a, that state of when it recovers from adrenaline, just trying to get back its resources. And that's what happened. Um, yes, it's a huge release. And that release, oddly, is actually, it's not exhausting. It, it, it just makes you want to sort of just hibernate for a bit. Bianca had an option to stay anonymous under South Africa's protected disclosure laws. But out of frustration, she chose not to. I could have just given all my information to Plop and said, here's the copy of my computer. I'll take every reference of me away. But I, I knew and I appreciated the fact that the, the place that I and the role that I played within the organization that was in complicit in state capture I had to stand by it. And, and that's the thing I think that's really important is when you stand by the information that you're trying to blow the whistle on, you give it so much more credence. How you sourced it, how you interpreted it, all that type of stuff gives it so much more impetus. But there are some positives for Bianca that have arisen due to her courageous act of whistleblowing. You know that the information that you have is valuable. And you know that the information that you have, you have to stand by. This is one of the things that I appreciated through my experience of whistleblowing. At the time when I blew the whistle, there were a few whistleblowers that put forward information in the public domain, but they remained anonymous. But if your intention is to actually garner change, make change, influence change, you, you have to stand by the truth that you know. 
And that is a time-consuming process, especially if it has legislative consequences, either in terms of civil claims or criminal claims. It's hard, but I do, I, I still think it's, I think it's worth it. I mean, I still remain hopeful. And I'm quite, uh, have adjusted to everything, but of course I'm dealing with a lot of challenges and so on, but that was all expected. This is Johannes Stefansen, a former director of the Icelandic fishing company Samiri. This position led him to work in Namibia, where he blew the whistle on several corrupt practices involving ministers in Namibia and Angola. Most of my life risks, uh, which were several attempts to my life, including poisoning, it all happened uh, before I came forward. So uh, then, therefore, you know, I was very much uh, aware of what I was going into. And there also had been propaganda against me and so on before I came forward. And uh, everything what has happened since I came forward and after the stories broke out uh, one year ago, is basically in, in line what I expected. And I also, you know, had to uh, prepared myself and read about whistleblowers and uh, their journeys and so on. Johannes disclosed 30,000 emails, documents, contracts and other evidence and he spent years cooperating with the authorities in Namibia. This came to be known as the fish rot case. The fishing industry in general worldwide is much more corrupt than people realize. And uh, thankfully, there is uh, more and more awareness about it. There are several different types of fishing corruption. There is illegal fishing in certain areas. There are vessels going into waters where they are not allowed. There are fraudulent fishing licenses. And in the fish rot case, Johannes revealed how Samiri, one of the biggest fishing companies in the world, paid bribes through tax havens in Cyprus and the Marshall Islands to senior officials in Namibia in exchange for trawling rights. And just to give you an example, you know, there is an estimated 1.3 billion US dollar uh, illegal fishing industry in Africa every year. So it just explains the magnitude of the, of the, of the corruption. And uh, there is, a, you know, there is a, some countries, they basically, they have a fleet going around the world fishing illegally and then they work with the transport companies who make fake papers and so on, you know. This is, uh, this is uh, it's massive and a big concern. Johannes has 25 years of experience in the fishing industry. Worldwide, we can say, you know, I've been working in the Russia and the South Indian Ocean and so on. I, I was also a fisherman for 12 years. And uh, I started to work for the Icelandic fishing company Samheri in 2007. And, uh, you know, took, was in some projects for them in, in Morocco and, and also on the vessels in Mauritania. And then I came to Namibia and I came to Namibia with a good intention to build up in Namibia and do good deeds. And, uh, you know, for the first years, I, I strongly believed Samheri was going to do some good things in Namibia. But from 2014, I started to suspect they were not going to honor their promises. And, and it was also very clear that in 2011, the agenda was to get as close to the Minister of Fishery in Namibia. 
so we would be in a stronger position. It was clear to Johannes that Samiri was also trying everything in order not to pay any tax in Namibia. You get dragged into this mentality and you start to participate in the in the in in the work to, for example, avoid paying taxes. And uh, you know, with the with the years and I've, from 2014, I've you know, there was a lot of a uh, lot of red flags, and uh, from 2014 to 2016, uh, then uh, I uh, was a growing conflict with uh, my superiors at the company, and uh, that was mostly due to that uh, they were not going to honor the promises uh, towards the country and create jobs, invest, and and etc. There was even a bilateral agreement between Angola and Namibia so that the ministers of both countries could arrange fishing quotas for Samiri in exchange for bribes. Then we had the state fishing company Fishcore, which uh, the sharks had positioned themselves in that company. He calls the corrupt government officials sharks. Because, of course, the minister of fishery, or a former minister of fishery who's in jail now, you know, he was taking decisions. And uh, then we had also, the, you know, the, he, uh, one of the sharks was the attorney general at that time, and he later became minister of justice. So it was quite strong and powerful people working with Samiri to secure as much quotas. And these corrupt quotas started to grow, was, uh, was, were not a big volumes in 2014 and 15, but uh, started to grow in 2016. Security is a big deal for Johannes. He always felt under threat. Then uh, I noticed we, I was followed and spied on, you know, there has been one person uh, with me all the time. His name is Christian Yema. He's from uh, Congo, DRC. Christian now lives in South Africa and handles the protection and security services for Johannes. Uh, suddenly my life became a danger and, uh, and uh, Christian steps in and, and uh, he has some protection around me and... Then uh, I started to get threats. Then, you know, it was starting to increase a lot. So I could, uh, got quite a serious threat from some uh, mafia in, in, in Cape Town. And uh, we took it quite seriously. And within 30 minutes, Christian was picking me up. And, uh, and even with, you know, with, with some other protectors, even from the law enforcement, was, uh, we took me outside of Cape Town and hided me for five days. And then I left the country. And, it's, and at that time, I was still uh, battling with, uh, with, 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 with uh, Samiri just to get free from the company because they were not going to let me free as they kept me as a hostage basically in one of the company. So I could not do anything independently because I had a lot of opportunities, a lot, because people were calling me and wanted to work with me in one way or another. But uh, in the end, I, uh, I got a settlement agreement which was just in their favor and everything about them and nothing uh, what they had uh, promised me. But it was fine. I just wanted to get free. And that was 20th of uh, December. The days before, or the week before, there had been a higher risk around me, and uh, people tried to break into the place where I was, but my protector, he received them well and was armed, so they could not uh, get to me because they were definitely just going to go and pick me up and take me wherever, you know. And there were some other incidents. And... Um, I signed the settlement agreement 20th of December. I got free. And I think that night or the day after, I think that night, I start to feel the first poisoning effects. Johannes firmly believes he was poisoned at this point and that he has been suffering the consequences ever since. I had also been warned that I could be poisoned, but, you know, 
this is a new world and uh, it takes time to un or understand but i think i've adjusted quite well and after that the next three weeks we were in cape town i was poisoned systematically but uh, but uh, there was a very high security around me because uh, there was the war uh, it was very clear words on the street that they were going to uh, some mafias were working for someone they were going to take me out so there was a very high prote protection from christian side around me i mean several armed guards and so on so it ended like that you know after they have tried to get to me but never managed to go through you know through the protection but they managed to poison me the symptoms are scary you know problem with the vision the body is shaking, body is weak, you're not feeling as yourself, you're shaking and, and, and etc. You know, it was quite, uh, but you know, it started to be like unreal, is this happening? And you're not realizing how serious it was. And uh, there is a quite, uh, quite many effects which also then came later, you know. And, uh, but uh, vision was just, you know, <laughs> becoming a, quite a problem and, and I also collapsed several times, but I always refused to go to the hospital because uh, I was not sure what it was and if I would be treated according to what has happened to me. And, uh, but I collapsed uh, yeah, several times during this period. And, uh, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, people just thought I was, some people thought I was not going to make it, at least in a couple of the times, you know. Maybe just to look at it like this, that, you know, uh, they fear me so much, they wanted me out of the way. After he left the company, the corruption escalated. And I left middle of 2016 and it got much bigger in 2017, 18 and 19. So the corruption uh, got much bigger after I left, but I had all the, the layout and the formulas for it. And, uh, and it also was a process for me just to understand what I had been part of and the consequences of the Namibian people. Because, uh, you know, it's a process to understand when you have been in some kind of, uh, with, uh, with, with people who are, who are all about, you know, making as much money as possible from the resource of Namibia and has, uh, has had a devastating effect on tens of thousands of Namibians. And uh, then I knew I had to come forward. And I took that decision probably end of 2017, early 2018, and uh, I went to Namibia in August 2018 to report the crimes. It took some time, but Johannes finally got a meeting with the investigators in Namibia. And uh, I was quite lucky uh, with, uh, with my meeting with the Namibian investigators because I met the right investigators and I could uh, say everything. His whistleblowing had a huge impact. You see, the investigators and prosecutors in Namibia are doing extremely good and brave work. But there's a lot of bad forces also among them, but I met the right ones. And uh, they immediately, immediately took a decision to take this uh, onward. And uh, I met the financial Inte intelligence unit in, in Namibia and some uh, people from the police as well. I found in the meeting I could tell them everything and they didn't hesitate to take this forward. And a uh, few months later, anti-corruption commission in Namibia came into the picture, but I, I am, I'm only in contact with the very selected people which I trust. And uh, even, you know, when I went to August in 2018 to Namibia, me and Christian, 
The next meeting with them a few months later was in a disclosed location outside of Namibia. It just tells you how serious they took uh, the libraries and the cases. The next step was to involve the media. It was always clear for me that um, that I would uh, I would have to inform the media, and I met uh, WikiLeaks the chief editor uh, a little bit before, just a few weeks before I went uh, to Namibia to report the cases. And um, he put together some good media team. And um, and uh, they worked on this very well. And they put the story out in November last year. And uh, from that time, things uh, has, you know, because the public had to be known, be informed. And since then, you know, it has been, I would say, positive in general, for the cases. Other media units have come on board, such as Al Jazeera, OCCRP, and Finance Uncovered. Also, the public have received this very well, and I think that is very, very important. And the public needed to be known, because that was always, for me, very clear. The public needs to know, because this is on the massive scale. And I think it is also good, maybe, for the investigation, because, you know, when the, when the story broke out, the investigation in Nampia had been going on for 15 months. And uh, so uh, after the story broke out, it looks like the, the last obstacles were moved away and they could make the first rest of the sharks in Namibia in end of November last year. And they, most of them, or six of seven, have been in jail for almost one year now. And uh, this is the, the former Minister of Justice, former Minister of Fisheries, and uh, the and the son-in-law of the former Minister of Fisheries. Uh, it's the chairperson, uh, former chairperson of Fish Corp, which is the state fishing company, and and, uh, and also the former CEO, and one person who was in the front for the, the bilateral agreement between Namibia and Angola. Whistleblower protection laws are not available in Namibia. Though they have been mooted for several years, they have not come to fruition. PLAF, the platform to protect whistleblowers in Africa has assisted Johannes. First of all, Plava have done a super good work for me and it, it's very comforting and very good trust to have them. And I talked to uh, uh, Katja Sheriff and she received me very, very well. And, uh, and uh, they, you know, it was a big comfort for me and good to know all the support available and, and they have stood with me since uh, since everything came out and i'm working closely with them and uh, i'm in, i'm in contact with the lawyer there and and uh, katia and henry and also i mean there's a big name who is the founder is the lawyer william porton so they have been with me since uh, yeah 2019 and and i'm working with them as i say you know and they are also uh, making sure my story is out there and 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 uh, we, it's, it's being heard and they support me in many, many ways. We now turn to Professor Thomas Pogge, the Leitner Professor of Philosophy and International Affairs at Yale University, who is also the founding director of the Global Justice Program at Yale University. We asked him for his insights on what an anti-corruption court could mean for Africa 
and even globally? I think that in principle, it would be a very good idea for several reasons, right? One reason is that you would have high evidentiary standards. It would not be just a freelancer investigating and publishing sort of a, a public discourse out there where people make claims and counterclaims, but you would have a really systematic investigation that would uh, have high evidentiary standards and find the facts uh, as they may be. And it would also give other countries and potentially other international agencies a basis on which they could act. For example, they could uh, call for institutional changes, they could call for sanctions and so on and so forth. So whereas on the basis of a newspaper article, uh, you know, it's, it's not so easy if you have a claim, a counterclaim and so on, when should you take action? So I think those would be important advantages, and it would also uh, extend a measure of protection to whistleblowers who would, uh, if they are collaborating with the court, giving materials to the court, who would thereby get a little bit of protection. They would be harder to, to touch if they had shown goodwill by formally submitting their evidence to a court. Professor Pogge anticipates strong resistance to this idea. Because the thing is, you know, when you do dirty things, you know, you're corrupt and so on, what you always try to do is create doubt, right? So there are stories about you, things are being said, you know, this person is uh, siphoning off money, this person is uh, using violence against opponents and so on and so forth. And you will always deny it and create a smokescreen of doubt. And then other people will interact with you. They will say, look, I'm not really confident to act on the assumption that you are a crook, that you are stealing money and so on. Yes, I know there are rumors, but uh, as you tell me, these are political opponents. This is politically motivated as the beautiful phrase always goes. Since it's politically motivated, you know, I don't really know what to do. And so I will, so long as there isn't any kind of uh, official finding, I will treat you as if you are clean, like an inkfish. They surround themselves with a cloud of doubt, and that's enough for them. And he cautions around what to avoid in forming such a court. What must be avoided, I think, is that it is a court whose attention is focused on Africa, but where uh, the whole world sits, you know, and is basically saying, look, Africa is that poor little backward place and civilized nations have a responsibility to help them on their feet. No, we don't need that, right? So either it's an African affair, in which case it, uh, is, it should be run by Africans, but it has to be international within Africa. So it has to be something that is a higher level than just the national courts, because the national courts, of course, are too easily squeezed by the people in power. Professor Pogge also has views on financial compensation for certain whistleblowers. And you will remember that Bianca was advocating for this at the start of this episode. I don't think it's important, and I don't think it is uh, necessarily wise, because if there are financial incentives, that is just one more stepping stone for creating doubt, right? So if, if there is a reward for whistleblowers, 
then I, as the accused person, will say, look, this guy is running there. He's complaining about me because he wants to make himself some money. That's what's going on. And mm. we don't want that, right? We want whistleblowers to be impeccable. They are motivated by, uh, by an honest concern for, the, for justice and the good of their country and not by any kind of financial incentives and rewards. We absolutely have to protect them against any downside. That's crucial, right? They should not be suffering for what they have done, but they should also not be rewarded. Again, we, we have to protect them. And if their livelihood is threatened, we have to make sure that they are compensated. We have to bring them up to the level where they would be if they weren't whistleblowing, but not above. We should not reward them. We should not make them rich. One other thing is that... Uh, if we had these rewards, rewards might also bring fake whistleblowers out of the woodwork. And fake whistleblowers are the one thing we really, really don't want, right? Because one fake whistleblower can discredit a hundred uh, honest whistleblowers. And then he moves on to how we can help whistleblowers in such contexts. Yeah, I think uh, that there are many small things that we can all do, right? For example, even I, as a little nobody, I can uh, put somebody in my Twitter feed, right? So if uh, I see that somebody is in trouble in a country, I can say, this person is, has written this really brave article exposing dictator such and so, and uh, is now potentially getting into trouble. And then if a Yale professor at the other end of the earth is tweeting about it, maybe the people will think twice before they attack. Uh, obviously people in the media are in a much better position. So if you work for, I don't know, Le Monde or Der Spiegel or something like that, and uh, if you can put a little article out, maybe just on your website of, of your journal, uh, immediately, you know, people perk up and say, oh, my God, this is no, 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 no. This is counterproductive. You know, if I if I go after this person or if I, you know, whatever, if I continue doing what I'm doing, uh, this is going to bring my whole edifice down like a house of cards. So it works as a good deterrent. I think we all should be awake and aware and should help people. One example, which is not exactly in the area, but uh, there is a guy now running for president in Uganda, Bobby Wine. He is, it's a precarious situation. He's very, very popular because he's also a musician. And Museveni doesn't like this guy at all. And of course, Museveni is thinking every day, you know, should I just get this guy killed? What we all can do, I'm tweeting about Bobby Wine every day. I'm worried about the man. I hope that he will... Uh, course, win the presidency. And I hope this will be the first peaceful transition in Uganda in a long, long time. And in Africa, it's very rare, as you know. So I hope very much that we can make sure that the election will go forward in a free and fair way. And the more people pay attention, the more people publicize it, uh, the greater is the protection and the stronger is the deterrent on Museveni and his ilk to simply have this man shot or pepper sprayed or arrested or whatever. Finally, Professor Pogi talks about what feeds corruption and what factors in a society can make it worse. One thing is uh, secrecy, intransparency that uh, happens, for example, in Africa. One important factor is that a great part of the budget of countries 
comes in not through the tax system, but comes in through resource sales. And so you can kind of, you know, it's very difficult to find out information, how much money is actually coming in. And it's much easier there to divert money and also to hit up companies. And you say, look, uh, you take a little, you know, take twice as much as you officially write down on the paper, take twice as much iron ore or uh, whatever you're exporting and uh, just pay me a little bit under the table and we'll uh, not notice that you are cheating. And so uh, because there is this enormous gap and salaries, are, official salaries are low uh, among African officials, you basically uh, can very cheaply make the officials be their politicians, parliamentarians, whatever, look the other way if you give them a private payment that may just be 1% of the money that you are saving in terms of the official payment, like taxes or whatever you would otherwise have to pay. And inequality has an important role to play. A company, for example, if there is somebody in the tax office who is really smart, really clever, and is catching on to our tricks and shenanigans, we hire this guy, right? We just hire this guy. We, give, we pay him 10 times what he's getting paid in the tax office or she, and uh, that's the end of the, of the problem. And remaining people whom we don't hire, they're relatively incompetent and we run rings around them. We just, you know, fill out uh, enormous tax forms with appendices and amendments and so on and so forth. And in the end, you know, they will just say, we, we can't deal with this. We don't know how to, how to analyze it. What is always important to fight corruption, of course, is uh, some sort of an independent agency that the, uh, the executive, the politicians cannot simply control at will. And that's something that countries resisting tooth and nail, right? Uh, we had a great experience in Guatemala where we had the CISIC, which is an organization that was run by a very, very competent lawyer from Colombia. So he was a foreigner. He came in, it was a UN-sponsored operation, and he had no powers of jailing anybody or whatever, but he had powers to submit people for prosecution. So it was an independent prosecutorial office that specifically went after corruption. And he jailed, I think, two presidents and so on. I mean, he was very successful. And then he started on the relatives of the existing president. And immediately the mandate was terminated. He was thrown out of the country and Sisik was dissolved. So it, it didn't have a happy ending, but that's the kind of thing that works, right? A fiercely independent, highly competent prosecutor who knows the language, knows the uh, the kind of context. So this would be these would be African people who can then go after the the people who are corrupt and create the necessary information and also deterrence. been listening to The Witness. I'm Fatima Hassan. This podcast series is brought to you by PLAF, the platform to protect whistleblowers in Africa, and is produced by Volume. For more information, please visit plaf.org. Join us next time for The Witness.
Goodbye. Volume.